June 16th, 2019, and this is episode 401 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Hey folks, on today's episode, we'll jump straight into part two of our discussion with Bitcoin developers Sippa and Jonas for some of the most important upcoming Bitcoin improvement proposals. Later, I'm joined by Alex and now Timi for a look at Bitcoin and cryptocurrency from the Nigerian perspective. To subscribe for free directly to the Let's Talk Bitcoin show's new dedicated podcast feed, head over to ltbshow.com and subscribe via iTunes, Google Podcasts, or more. There's a few more things that Taproot tries to achieve. One of them is better efficiency for verification, because there is another feature of Schnorr signatures, which is batch verifiability. Batch verifiability is a way to, if you're given a thousand signatures, each with their own public key and message you want to verify, you can tell whether all of them are valid faster than testing them all individually. The downside is if batch validation fails, you have no idea which of the inputs was invalid. But generally in Bitcoin blocks, we don't care about that. We only care about is the whole block valid or not. So this property of batch verifiability, which is a factor two, three, four, sometimes depending on how many things you aggregate together, we wanted to maintain that property even when it was integrated into the script system. In order to do so, there are a few opcodes in the scripting language that are incompatible with this. One of them is check multisig. Interestingly, we have better ways of doing multisig now, but even if those were somehow not available to people, the check multisig opcode can't remain in its existing form because you give it a number of public keys and a number of signatures and uh, really the verifier has to try to match up which public key corresponds to which signature and this trial operation we can't batch that so we were kind of forced to make a few small changes to the scripting language anyway to guarantee compatibility with batch verifiability so that is what became TapScript. TapScript is the modifications to the scripting language for scripts under Taproot. And really, it's a separate document for two reasons, I think. One, BIP Taproot was getting pretty long already. Also, and that's another feature I think that BIP Taproot focuses on is flexibility. So in the Merkle tree of root. every leaf is a script combined with what we're calling a leaf version. And this is again a sort of versioning scheme, very similar to SegWit script versioning, except these aren't revealed at payment time. They're only revealed at spending time. And even more interestingly, different leaves can have different versions and you only reveal the one you're actually using. So you get a potential privacy advantage from, say, a new fancy scripts improvement gets made. But it's only necessary in one branch of settling your contract, then you're not even going to reveal this unless you actually use it. So TapScript is the proposed version zero of the leaf version under Taproot. And as there could in the future be different new ones for this, it's also a separate document where, say, if it's v0, oop, read uh, bib script. If it's something else, for now, it's unencumbered, but later proposals may redefine this. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yes. To me, it does. So in terms of batch verifiability, Peter, from what I understand, there's like three or more different levels of batch verifiability. There's verifying multiple signatures in a single script. There's verifying multiple signatures across inputs of the same single transaction. And then there's verifying signatures across multiple inputs, across multiple transactions, perhaps even a whole block. Which level of batch verifiability are we talking about here? All of them. These increasing levels you're talking about, they're increasingly complicated to integrate in software. 
but there is nothing that prevents batch verifying the entire chain in a single operation. And batch verifying the entire chain would have the result of effectively making sure that the entire chain is valid. And if there's any transactions or actions within it that are invalid, then the entire thing would show up as invalid. So you could do that theoretically, and it should still work even at that scale. That's right. It is probably not something you want to do when like individual blocks are coming in, but for verifying history, this may be the case. Andreas, I need to point out, we're talking about batch verifiability here. There is another property, namely aggregation, and there things look very different. So when we're talking about batch verifiability, all the transactions, all the signatures, all the public keys individually still remain in the chain. It is just a faster way of verifying them all at once. This is basically a CPU and memory optimization in the client that's verifying the chain. Yes, absolutely. It is just that. And a reference implementation doesn't even do this at this point. The whole proposal is just designed to make this optimization possible. In contrast to that, there's signature aggregation, which is technology where you effectively reduce the number of signatures that are in a transaction or in a block even, and so on. And so far, pip taproot and tapscript as is only support forms of aggregation within a single input. So multiple keys within a single input. One is through music construction where you get rid of the public keys, you combine them all, and now you have a single signature for it. But there's more advanced ways of enabling wider aggregation, but those are not included. But they're not prevented either. So there's a possibility that in the future, you could have perhaps a transaction with three or four inputs where we could have aggregation of the signatures. So there's one signature for the entire transaction. And then perhaps even later on, if all of the signatures in a block were like that, you could even aggregate a whole block into one signature. Yes, not prevented, but it will require a successor to Taproot. The aggregation would be across. It will probably not be in things they use with Taproot. In terms of the adoption of this, we obviously don't currently have a timeline for these BIPs to be soft forked into mainnet. But let's assume that they were soft forked at some point in the future. Obviously, this would be a hybrid chain where ECDSA, which still exists, of course, you know, one of the principles in Bitcoin is you don't invalidate old outstanding UTXO. Anyone can bring anything back from the very first block and it should still be spendable. And at that point, you have ECDSA and Schnorr coexisting in blocks, perhaps even in single transactions, some inputs could be ECDSA, some could be Schnorr, they're going to be mixed. How does that affect batch verifiability, let's say on a transaction basis? Do you just batch verify whichever Schnorr signatures you have and then separately verify the ECDSA ones? Yeah, that's exactly it. You get the gains, but they only apply to the Schnorr signatures. And so the more adoption you have of Schnorr signatures, the more wallets, for example, migrated and the more new UTXOs you had Schnorr, the more that optimization starts benefiting the network. Just like SegWit. Yep. Yeah, the difference here is, of course, there's no actual user benefit to this batch verifiability. So there's no discount for enabling it other than the fact that Schnorr signatures are somewhat smaller. But yeah, I expect that there are sufficient incentives to when Schnorr signatures are eventually, this may take a long time, of course, widely adopted to give a significant boost. Do you have some thoughts, Jonas? Yes. Basically, validating Schnorr signatures and ECDSA signatures, if you don't take batch verification into account, they are similarly fast. But with batch verification, Schnorr signatures become faster. So if I look at the numbers here, if you have 10 signatures, then you can validate them 1.5 times as fast, for example. Or if you have like the number of signatures on the order of a block, like let's say a couple of thousand, then you get like two and a half times the speed up over validating them all one by one. But yeah, doing that, as Peter said, really implementation defined you. Whenever you see a transaction, you can try to batch verify it. But when you batch verify transaction or signatures, if it doesn't work out, you don't know at all, 
which specific signature verification failed. But I think this is just an engineering challenge when to use batch verification and when not to do that. I would assume that one of the big benefits, especially over the longer term, is in keeping the initial block download time or IBD, as it's called, which is when you bootstrap a new node and you have to start from the Genesis block and verify all the way forward, which is obviously very desirable to be able to always do that. The more transactions, the more blocks, the longer it takes. And Bitcoin Core has managed over the past couple of years to essentially stop the clock by optimizing about as fast as the block size grows so that it's not significantly longer and in some cases even faster than it was in the past. So with batch verification of Schnorr, when you're verifying blocks that have already been mined, where the transactions are presumably already valid, unless you're looking at a fraudulent blockchain, then this would be a significant boost for long-term IBD scalability, right? Right. It's another factor that gets added to it. To the extent, of course, that IBD is dominated by signature checks. And on most systems, I think it's actually dominated by access to DDXO sets. IBD? Question mark. Please define it. Irritable bowel disease. Initial block <laughs> download. Sorry. I have a medical background. <laughs> well, if your node has insufficient RAM, they become the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> so basically what you're saying is that the advantage that we were talking about, right, where you can download the entire uh, blockchain and you would be able to potentially verify, that only comes into effect when we're talking about Schnorr signatures. Yeah. During that transition period where we've got a lot of Schnorr signatures, but we also have a lot of non-Schnorr signatures in the same block, can you batch verify that block or would you just be batch verifying all of the Schnorr signature transactions within that block? Yeah, exactly. You batch verify just the Schnorr signatures. Okay, gotcha. So in the past, uh, when we've talked about these upcoming BIPs, one of the features that has been discussed quite a bit is SIGHASH no input, as it's been known. And it also goes by the name of SIGHASH any prev out. Basically, what this is, to remind our listeners, is there are some proposals in the Lightning Network to change the way the protocol works in a formulation called L2, E-L-T-O-O, which greatly simplifies the use of the Lightning channels by making it unnecessary to have penalty closure in the case of trying to cheat by transmitting a prior state that has been invalidated. That requires a change in the Bitcoin script and specifically in the way signatures are applied to transactions, which is called the SIGHASH system and in a way that allows you to rebound to a different input. That's been called SIGHASH no input. It has some other names because there are various formulations being proposed. That has been included as part of TapScript. No, it hasn't. Oh, it was being proposed or discussed for potential inclusion? BIP TapScript includes a number of improvements to the SIG hashing scheme, but it does not include SIG hash no input. And the reason for that is exactly because there's been a lot of discussion about various ways of doing it and various ways of making it safe because it touches some essential way of how transactions sign the previous data things are coming from. And breaking this is uh, scary. So instead, we realized that Instead of including it directly, we could include a number of flexibility mechanisms in Taproot and TapScript that would allow us to do things like this in the future at, at no loss. In particular, the types of flexibility that exist are the leaf versioning, as I mentioned before. Another one is op success. So inside TapScript, a large portion of the previously unusable opcodes go from basically being a return false to a return true. So anytime any of these opcodes exist inside your script, they would mean that you can spend it unconditionally, just like future SegWit versions or future Leaf versions. And the practical advantage of this is you can redefine those opcodes to be anything. They don't need to be backward compatible with the knob, which is what we have now. 
And then a third mechanism is when you have a public key that starts with a byte you don't know, it is also treated as an automatically valid one. This means that we can introduce new types of signature schemes, but also new SIGHash schemes without needing to add new CheckSig opcodes for each and every one that gets added. The idea is that things like no input could then be included as no cost as a new public key version. So these are essentially within TapScript mechanisms for future upgradability, and there's a whole set of them. There's three different ways that you can do future upgrades to scripts. Change the version of TapScript and the leaf, modify the semantics of something that is currently an op success that old clients that haven't been upgraded will see as a valid script, and this public key SIG hash prefix that can be redefined again that old clients see as a valid script. So that means that the things requested by an L2 implementation in Lightning do not need to be roadblocks in the implementation of these three BIPs, Taproot, TapScript, and Schnorr. The conversation can continue on how exactly to implement those. Yeah, we were at some point in the discussions around this, we were noticing that actually the discussion around SigHash no input was very much slowing down our progress on other things. So we decided to instead have this flexibility and publish the BIPs without. But of course, this doesn't mean that if one of the proposals for no input gets enough traction and an implementation, it could even be activated at the same time as the other ones. But as you say, there are no longer roadblocks in the conversation about Taproot itself. How very Solomonian. I mean, that's a, <laughs> it's a great way to resolve a potential deadlock and move forward with features that now at this point have broad traction within the developer community. So having said that, discussion around SIGCache no input is currently generating about a third of my inbox for today. Today was a particularly lively discussion about that. A lot of different ways of making them safe or whether they need to be made safe in the first place and chaperone signatures and various other mechanisms are being discussed. But assuming that that continues as a lively debate, what is your feeling about how these BIPs might progress into implementation, the three BIPs, ignoring SIGCache no input and any controversy around that? For now, I hope to get input and review from developer community and get a feeling for how well received it is so far has been very positive, but I really can't say much about steps after that. At some point, there will be a reference implementation. We'll, we'll hope to get a feeling for whether it is acceptable enough to the community to include it in Bitcoin Core and potentially other full node implementations, then a discussion about how to activate it can start, and then we see how to go from there. I think it's very wise not to try to make any predictions about when and how and how it will be activated. One of the most surprising things for many of the developers was how controversy erupted around SegWit when it seemed like everybody was on the same page and it became very, very heavily politicized. And that's not really relevant to this discussion. But in terms of the reference implementation as a follow-up, I thought that you had already published a reference implementation on a fork of Bitcoin Core, and it was affecting about 500 lines of consensus code. Yeah, something like that. Though I, I want to point out, this is more for demonstration purposes than anything else. I want to show how little is affected here. Before code can be included, we'll need a much more reviewed, production-ready version with much more tests and so on. Also, I, I expect there will be minor and possibly major changes that we still want to make to the proposal in response to public discussion. So having a production-ready version is something that happens after all those discussions. Right. At this stage, someone could download the fork, run a reg test blockchain on their own laptop and start playing with all of these features today, right? That is right. 
Uh, though I should also add this reference implementation is purely the consensus rules and nothing else. So there's absolutely no integration into the Bitcoin Core wallet, for example, which has no ability to produce such transactions. And not even in the RPC no. infrastructure or anything else. You'd basically have to write uh, some code to call the library components. Yeah. We're working on a number of other things to, to make it easier to integrate uh, more complex scripts into Bitcoin Core's wallet and signing logic and, and possibly other software too called mini scripts. But how we'll end up integrating those is for later. The, the point is, of course, for inclusion in the protocol, we don't need wallet support. It's a great way to show the advantages if it is there, but it's not necessary as a first step. And it greatly simplifies the review needed. With proposals and changes to protocol level features like this and consensus layers features like this, these don't really become part of the user experience or go into production until wallets implement them. Bitcoin Core, of course, first, but other wallets too. And we're now at 18 months from the SegWit soft fork into mainnet and the introduction of batch 32 addresses, et cetera, and still wallets lagging. It's very hard as a wallet maintainer to keep up with changes and implement these things at a user interface level, of course. How would you characterize implementation of Taproot, TapScript, Schnorr signatures, and these features in terms of the difficulty for wallet developers to bring these features to users? That's a hard question because it very much depends on what you want to do with it. So given the flexibility in things that Taproot and TapScript and Schnorr signatures permit, it really depends. If all you're doing is changing your P2W, PKH, uh, receive addresses to something Taproot-based, it's a fairly trivial change. I expect the signature hashing algorithm changes a bit. Of course, you'll need something that can do Schnorr signatures instead of easy DSA signatures, but there are several implementations for that already. And uh, how you compute your address will change a bit. On the other hand, if you're talking about integration of something where you use the Merkle tree with various branches, some using one of the newer features in there, you want to use music to combine multiple public keys together. All those things lead to many more options. And of course, there's complexity in implementation there. But these features aren't necessary for everyone who wants to use it. I'm thinking more of the, if I want to hide in the forest, I want everybody else to be planting a tree too. So it's not so much about the people doing the fancy wallets. It's more the people who are doing the plain P2PKH, P2WPKH the payment to public key, switching to Schnorr so that that gives the more complex scripts a nice uniform place to hide their privacy-enhancing features. Yes. I think it's a significantly smaller change than SegWit was because there's no peer-to-peer -peer protocol changes or changes to the structure of transactions or blocks, but you do have the Schnorr versus ECDSA thing. As a follow-up to that, with SegWit, we saw a new address format, batch 32, the native SegWit address that starts with BC1. Are we going to see another address format, or is this going to be incorporated into batch 32 addresses? It already is, because BIP173, that defines the batch 32 addresses for Bitcoin, actually specifies an address format for every SegWit output, not just V0 ones. So SegWit v1 outputs can already be encoded using BEC32 addresses. There may be some compatibility issues. Uh, it's possible that sender software still only allows version 0 witness BEC32 outputs. But even if that's the case, that would be a very simple change to permit v1 as well. So no new address format, which I'm sure is a relief for everyone who's trying to learn what all of them are. Yeah, in fact, the fourth character in a BIP173 address is uh, for V0, always a Q. It's BC1Q, 
for V1, it will be BC1P. Oh, very good. I didn't realize that. Guys, really, thank you very much for uh, taking all this time with us. This was a very interesting conversation, and I think that I came away with it understanding a lot more about these issues than I did before, although I still perhaps have a little bit of a deficient understanding. Yeah, me too, Adam. It's, it's going to seep in through osmosis. We just listen back to the podcast too. <laughs> but I, no, all joking aside, I really appreciate it too. I feel like I have a better understanding also. So we've been talking about stuff that's very real. And while it might not have an immediate timeline, it seems like it is on the path towards integration. And there's broad consensus, at least within the developer community, on these less controversial parts of it. Stepping back from this now version of the technology, what I'd really like to hear from either or both of you is what technologies or just even ideas that you're excited about or that you think will be important for the Bitcoin protocol moving forward, but which we might not have even heard of yet or which we might not think is important. Are there any technologies out there or ideas that you guys are really excited about in the next couple of years beyond this? This whole taproot thing is a very new idea. So it's really hard to say what will be out there as ideas in the next five years because this seems to change all the time. So now that this BIP is proposed, it's not even formally proposed in the BIP process sense. Right now, it's only on the mailing list. The work with that is far from over because this needs to be polished and maybe some improvements need to get in, minor, major ones. Peter mentioned it, but also, so my focus is building some of the libraries that are used in wallet implementations or Bitcoin Core. So for example, you need an implementation for Schnorr signatures. We have that right now. Uh, it has uh, received uh, quite a bit of review, but then we also want an implementation of music. So we have a PR for that as well, but that needs more review. And then we're also going to work on threshold signatures, for example. And since these things are relatively new also for Bitcoin developers to work with, and they require interactions between multiple participants of the protocol, we really want to make these libraries easy to use and safe first and foremost. And I think this will still require a lot of work. And this is something that I'm focusing on, but I'm also really excited about seeing this in reality, hopefully at some point in a couple of years or next year, or we'll see. Yeah, I, I think that that's a very good point. There's a lot of options that are created by things like Taproot and Schnorr that I think we haven't even considered. Just very recently, there was the check output hash verify that Jeremy Rubin proposed, for example, that is made a lot simpler by Taproot. And I expect we'll see more ideas of just things that people haven't thought about that can be built on top either as minor consensus changes or just purely wallet side payment channel kind of things. Beyond that, I'm really excited about cross-input aggregation. This means the idea of turning potentially all signatures per transaction into a single one. So you would have just only a single signature per transaction, at least when everyone is cooperating, even in a large coin join or something. This has shown to really interact with many parts of the system. So that was something we left out of BIP Taproot. But ironically, that feature was what drove us to research Schnorr signatures and all the ways it interacts in the first place. So I hope we can get back to that in a future step. Also, things like Graftroot and Groot, or Groot, which are improvements over Taproot and generalizations of it. If you're talking about completely unrelated things to Bitcoin scripting, other technologies I'm excited about, for example, we've been working for a while on a better transaction relay protocol, Gleb, Nomenko, and Greg Maxwell and I. We wrote a mini sketch library to sort of efficient set reconciliation with each other instead of announcing the same transactions over and over again that I'm really excited about. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here with Paul from Edge for a quick sponsored minute. So Paul, recently on the show, we've been talking about on the one hand, centralized exchanges like Bitfinex and on the other extreme, fully decentralized exchanges. 
So Edge actually strikes the sweet spot of security and usability for exchange services. So we are at the basis a non-custodial wallet, so users fully control their private keys, giving them that base level of security. But we also integrate multiple independent crypto-to-crypto -crypto exchange providers that gives a user a huge variety of assets that they can exchange. And Edge from your phone will actually find the pair that you want to exchange and the volume that you want, and then it will actually even find you the best price across all the different exchange providers. And today we have four different crypto-to-crypto -crypto exchange providers. In the next few months, you're going to see half a dozen more, giving users a huge selection and the best price across all of them. A big thanks to Paul and Edge for their support of the Let's Talk Bitcoin show. To learn more, visit edge.app or search for Edge, that's E-D-G-E, -E, wallet, on either the Android or iOS app stores. While we all know that cryptocurrency can be incredibly empowering in the developed world, in practice, it's mostly a speculative tool here. A few weeks ago, Alex Gladstein of the Human Rights Foundation approached me about collaborating on a series of interviews showcasing perspectives and voices that go beyond our expected experiences. Today, I'm pleased to have Alex Gladstein here for our second interview. Hey, Alex. Hey, Adam. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. So last week, we talked to Zia in Iran. This week, we'll be talking to Timi Ajiboy, who's currently located in Lagos, Nigeria. Timi, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So just to kick things off, can you tell us a little bit about your background, your profession, and your level of experience with cryptocurrency? My background, I've pretty much lived my whole life um, in Lagos. I am a software developer. I used to freelance for most of my career for all sorts of startups, both locally and internationally. And I guess my experience with crypto, it's pretty recent. I only started interacting in any way with crypto in 2017 which is exactly the year I decided to start an exchange. So I've only had about one and a half years of experience, but it's been a wild ride since then. So what was the specific catalyst a year and a half ago that pulled you in and got you interested in cryptocurrency, not just to the point where you were interested in it, but where you actually were starting an exchange? What was kind of the cascade of events that led to that? So, I mean, there was a lot of noise, right? And... Um, it was one of those things um, in the, I guess, tech industry where I would tell myself, oh, okay, uh, I would find time to do some research sometime. But then my, my housemate bought about uh, $600 worth of Ethereum. And then in a few months, it became $20,000 and he sold it and I saw money. And I was like, wait, 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 this makes no sense. How, right? How, how, how did this happen? What's going on? So that, that exactly pushed me into trying to understand and trying to figure out if I could trust whatever this was. And then realizing that it was difficult to take advantage of the benefits I'd found here because it wasn't really easy to have access. That also pushed me to go create my own thing. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on how does Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies, how might they help you as an individual, as an entrepreneur in Nigeria? You know, why are people using them? Are there actual use cases in terms of remittances or global payments? The biggest use case right now is remittance. That's kind of what my initial use case too was. I had a friend in the US who I wanted to help me get an iPhone. And the fastest way to send money to him at the time, especially because I already had some Bitcoin, was by sending it to his address and he would sell it on Coinbase and buy the phones and bring them whenever it's coming to Lagos or whatever, right? In, in my experience the past two years, we found that all the activity that involves going from fiat to Bitcoin and back is literally like a transport engine for remittance. It's, that's the main thing because there's a lot of inflow of value and money from, I guess, China to Nigeria and back and Nigeria to the US and Canada and back. So if I sent you $100 of Bitcoin right now and you received it in 20, 30 minutes, how long would it take you to turn into Naira? Right now, it should take between two to three minutes. Can you walk us through how does that work? Okay, so there are a few ways people go about this, right? 
the most popular way and which is what I used initially and, and what I kind of had a problem with with the peer-to-peer exchanges like uh, local Bitcoins that let you essentially, it's like eBay for crypto or like Craigslist. People list what they have to buy or sell and tell you how they would like to be paid. Um, so that process can take anywhere from one hour to five hours, depending on how long the communication between you and who you're trading with is. Um, another way people do is they they go off like word of mouth. So, you know, one person has someone who they know trades and then they link each other on WhatsApp and they, they do that. But that is very fraud prone, which is what led me here. I felt like there had to be a way to create something that would make it as fast as I felt like it was outside Nigeria, right? So if you were to use Bitcoins, um, the exchange, it would be like two or three minutes. If you were to use either peer-to-peer exchanges or try to meet in person, it could take anywhere from one hour to, I guess, days. But we're talking, you know, any of these options are way faster than me trying to send you a Western Union or some sort of U.S. money to your Nigerian bank account, right? Like, how long would that take? Most things take about a day. There are some that are actually faster. There are some services that are faster than a day, but they're expensive, right? So I guess the cost of the speed is how much you pay in fees. A good example of that is TransferWise. But for small amounts, um, anything ranging from zero to maybe $3,000, the cheapest way is still to use Bitcoin as long as you're liquidating instantly or as fast as you can. So for small amounts of money, it's faster and cheaper to send Bitcoin into Nigeria than to use the traditional banking system today. Yeah. For large amounts of money, it's so much faster and much more accessible right? Because not every business owner or individual has access to be able to send or receive Forex in large amounts, which we found is one of the biggest driving forces in the market right now. The fact that there are a lot of people, especially in China, trying to send money to Nigeria or back. There's millions of dollars going in and out every day, maybe hundreds of millions every day. And is that coming in in Bitcoin or in dollars, the Chinese money? Bitcoin. So it comes in Bitcoin and the entire Nigerian community trades with each other to essentially liquidate at the best price possible. And whenever it's going back out, it's pretty much the reverse process. And why are they sending in Bitcoin? Is it they're getting around capital controls or or why aren't they just using their currency and your banking system? Yeah, um, capital controls in China, it's horrible. Um, so yes, they're getting around capital controls. Also, there's some capital control here. I don't think it's as bad as China, but it's nowhere near as convenient. It's nowhere near as fast. Timmy, we heard from our friends in Iran that Telegram is kind of the way that the Bitcoin community communicates there. What is the platform of choice in Nigeria? Is it WhatsApp? Is it a different service? It's mostly WhatsApp and Telegram. There's been recently more use of Telegram in the past, I guess, a year. But also, a lot of Nigerian traders have WeChat because that's the biggest messaging platform in China, right? And if you're going to talk to the Chinese, you might as well have WeChat. If Telegram or Facebook is successful in implementing a cryptocurrency into their native platform as they are trying to do, do you think that would have a huge impact in Nigeria? Like, would a lot of people use that system? I think it will immediately impact the trading community positively. As for everyone else, I think it will take some doing and some time to abstract some of the complexities of crypto or to to make it easy for them to either have it be denominated in the local currency, Naira, something to just ease the transition between Naira and crypto, right? So I think it would take some time because People don't know necessarily know how to move from what they think is actual money to crypto. The masses generally don't know that. So I think long term or medium term, it will make a big difference in how Nigerians accept payments from everywhere in the world. Or And, and remittance is a big thing. Um, I think, I'm not sure about the number, but I think uh, last year, Nigerians sent back about $25 billion home or something like that. 
25 billion dollars in us yeah i think so wow yeah so we have a lot of uh, people in diaspora sending money back home so it's a big thing and there's this new um i guess relatively new trend of people who are nigerians outside of nigeria wanting to buy things from nigeria right that also would be greatly impacted if it was much easier to just send value across and i think Facebook and WhatsApp doing that is something I'm looking forward to actually. It's very exciting. So given the predominance of remittance type applications, is there a government perspective on it? Has the government taken a stance on cryptocurrency? There's no law. There are no requirements or like any compliance things, but they have shown that they're apprehensive by doing things like the central bank releasing us a memo telling banks to not hold crypto, for example. Because of that, there's been some kind of fear, especially from the direction of the banks, to actually even just bank crypto startups, for example. But I think from trying to engage and from trying to like immerse myself in you know, the regulatory space, I think it's pretty 50-50. I think there are people who don't understand crypto, who all they know is the vague, oh, it can it can help with laundering money and don't really understand how it works. And there are people who, because they see how the rest of the world is responding to crypto, they're interested in being more favorable. But right now, it's really just an open-ended thing. No one really has any firm ideas as to what will happen. Timmy, tell us about chain analysis. Like, is the government you know, monitoring Bitcoin or other blockchain cryptocurrency activity? Are they enforcing anything? Has anyone been arrested for using this technology? Or is it something that they are kind of taking more of a passive view on? Yeah, it's mostly passive. So I guess when there are, I guess, cases of fraud, when maybe someone tries to trade with someone and essentially doesn't get the value they were promised, there have there have been actions in terms of maybe banks deciding to shut down accounts or there's this agency that deals with fraud and like financial crime, the FCC, getting involved in specific cases of fraud that had to do with crypto. But nothing that is like a direct rule as to don't do this with crypto or you'll get arrested is, is essentially just like if people scam other people any other way, right? Um, so there's nothing crypto-centric about how the government or the law operates right now. It's just very passive. I think a, a huge part of that is due to the fact that they don't really understand crypto. I guess it's my job and the job of everyone I work with and everyone in the industry to educate and bring everyone up to speed. So it's mostly a lack of understanding. I guess you you wouldn't want to just jump headfirst into something you don't completely understand. So. That's why they're passive. What do you think the community in Nigeria would like to see in Bitcoin or would like to see in cryptocurrency? Or if how do you want to see this develop, right? How does this develop so that it gets more useful for you and allows you to continue to do the things with it that you want, if that's a question? I think the most important breakthrough from where I'm standing would be a good enough stable coin. And by good enough, I mean not USDT. And the thing about stablecoins and crypto generally is that they're only as good as their network effects, right? So the more global a stablecoin is, an actually stable stablecoin, the more useful it would be. And I think that would be a fantastic step in moving a lot of transactions, not just international remittance, but day-to-day transactions. Also, it would make intracontinent remittance happen more because it doesn't happen as much as I think it should. I think more money moves between Nigeria and China or between Nigeria and the US than Nigeria and all the countries in Africa combined, right? I might be wrong about that, but I'm sure the statistic would be in my favor, right? So I think because our currencies are, some of them are actually pretty volatile and you know subject to inflation, like Zimbabwe, and a lot of them aren't valuable outside our country, right? The US dollar is valuable anywhere in the world. So the moment crypto can 
solve that, a stable store of value that can be sent to anyone anywhere in the world. That'll be interesting because now people will be motivated to just have their money stay in that form. So now to be clear, you're not necessarily talking about like a Nigerian specific stable coin. You're talking about like a really good, trustable version of a dollar pig stable coin, even if it isn't any of the ones we currently have out there, right? Yeah, it might be dollar, it might be euro, it might be something else. See, now it's really interesting that you say that because it's just a funny set of comparisons, right? You look at the US government and you look at the dollar as they meant it. And you say, well, this is much better compared to the other options that I have available. But I tell you, in the US, a lot of us feel kind of the opposite direction, but in the same way about Bitcoin, which is that, well, Bitcoin actually does represent that stable form of value where right now you have to trade in and out. But I mean, I'm not sure if you've looked at the national debt recently in the US or, or any of the other things that we're doing to really try and mess with the fact that we have the global reserve currency, but that might not actually last. So, but I, I totally hear what you're saying. It's just very funny to hear the argument being made about US dollars in the same way that I often think about cryptocurrency in general. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I understand that completely. But I guess it's just different different problems. <laughs> For sure. Do you use other cryptocurrencies besides Bitcoin or is it primarily Bitcoin focused for you? Yeah, it's primarily Bitcoin. And it's not just me, it's the entire community. And I think that's just a result of it being the biggest, most popular, most known cryptocurrency. It's Bitcoin. On my exchange, it's 95% Bitcoin being traded. And then Ethereum and Litecoin are I don't know, struggling for the winning 5%. So it's, it's largely Bitcoin, um, which sometimes strikes me as weird because I think some things are faster. But uh, I guess, like I said earlier, a currency is only as good as its adoption. So we've been talking about transaction fees. You know, Bitcoin is really, really inexpensive compared to most things. But if you have a currency, a local currency that, you know, is a fraction of the value of the dollar, well, then 50 cents or 25 cents for a transaction fee on the Bitcoin network might actually be a bit of money. Are transaction fees a problem, I guess, is the question I'm asking here. Right now, not, not really. I mean, everyone would like lower fees, especially people who trade for a living. Um, I guess 50 cents, 25 cents, how much is that in Naira? Give me a second. Uh... Oh, that's a lot of money. That's a hundred naira. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it would have to be much less. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's possible to send transactions for less than that. But if you follow the recommended settings, you know, and you want a fast confirmation, it seems like that's it. Does that mean that, you know, people are only really using on-chain transactions for like larger amounts of money, like, you know, for remittances? How are people using it given that the fee is a lot in local currency? So the fee is a lot in local currency for transactions between me and someone else in Lagos, Nigeria, right? But the fee is fine for essentially small transactions between, like I said, $100 to $4,000 between the US and Nigeria, right? Because everything else is more expensive. So even though Bitcoin is more expensive, perhaps, than it has been in the past, that's not really the point of comparison. The point of comparison is to the other options that allow you to do the equivalent thing. Exactly. That's pretty much what we've been hearing elsewhere. You know, when we started asking that question, I really honestly was expecting to hear about more adoption of the sort of more, you know, low cost, privacy focused type of coins. But so far in these first two conversations we've had, the answer has been the same in both situations, which is that the network effect and just the amount of adoption and support built around Bitcoin specifically trumps any specific advantage of, you know, like a faster block time or, you know, lower on-chain fees because of value or stuff like that. So that seems like that's the case here, too. That's very interesting. Yeah, it was very interesting to me, too, actually. I was like, but this is faster. This is cheaper. And they're like, well, it's not Bitcoin. So right. <laughs> so there's definitely some sort of cachet to the name and just the fact that it's the first one that's been around for as long as it has. Are people doing much mining in Nigeria? No, uh, mining requires power, which is something we managed to not solve. <laughs> oh, gotcha. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, that sounds good. So then primarily, it sounds like the use case there is really around kind of the remittances case. And then is there any sort of savings or speculation? If you had to, you know, give percentages, what would you say the uses are? 99% remittance. 99% remittance. Okay, that answers the question. Yeah. All right. Great. My final question would be just in your year and a half experience, how much has the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency community grown in Nigeria? Is it kind of flatlined with the bear market or has it grown a lot? One interesting thing is that the 
the volume of crypto traded back and forth between Naira and Bitcoin isn't really affected by dramatic changes in price. It's affected by a little bit because no one cares per se. If a million dollars needs to move from point A to B, it needs to move no matter how much one Bitcoin costs. So it's not really affected by the bear and the gold market. The only effects could be the fact that, oh, if it's really rising, people who aren't traders, people who aren't experienced, because the price is going up really fast, they, they think they want to make a quick buck. But that's the only like effect. For the most part, people just keep trading as much as they've always had, right? The community is growing and it's growing because of a conscious effort. So there are, I guess, kind of like the most popular traders or like the OGs, the seller traders who essentially host events, creates like group chats for teaching people how to trade, teaching people how to make sure they don't lose money in the process of converting crypto to Naira and back and forth. So the community is growing. Um, I think it's very, very far from saturation. Last year, we estimated that about $4 billion worth of crypto was traded in Nigeria alone. So I think that is the highest it's ever been. And I think this year will be even higher, no matter how what the price of Bitcoin ends up being, be it 20K or 5K. As long as it doesn't go to zero, it'll be fine. Super glad we could talk to you. You know, you look at this local Bitcoin's global data, at least from analysis of what's happening on that one platform. And Nigeria always ranks top three in the world in terms of the Naira being a popular currency. So it's really fascinating to talk to someone who is deep in that space. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. It's nice to listen to some of the questions you have and your reactions to them. It's very interesting how different problems and different like spaces can, can result in varying use cases for the same thing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Today's show is sponsored by Edge.app and featured content by Sipa, Jonas, Timmy, Alex, Andreas, Stephanie, Jonathan, and Adam. This episode was edited by Stephen and Adam with music by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. Any questions or comments? Email Adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. See you next time.